How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold has changed. The holy stones lie scattered at, at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in gold. How they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel. Like ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst, and the children beg for food, but no one gives them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral, and the beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot, and they are not recognized on the streets. Their skin has shriveled to their bones and has become dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by the lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children, and they became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. And so the Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger, and he kindled fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that a foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of their people, the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean people cried to them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. And people said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them and he will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to their elders. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles of the heavens, and they chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits. Of whom we said, under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. For to you also the cup shall pass, and you shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of our, your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished, and he will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish, and he will uncover your sins. 
Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to your word and we hear from you today. Hearing of a dark time in your people's history. Hearing so many horrific things that have happened to your people in the past. Because of their pride, because of their sin which blinded them. And so we ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds to how our pride has blinded us. And how, Lord, you use your discipline to humble us. Because that's exactly where you're found. Amongst the humble and the lowly. And that is where you save us. In your son's name we ask. Amen. You know, everyone loves apocalyptic movies and shows. Uh, We're surrounded by a culture that is enamored with the end of the world. We think of the movie Apocalypse Now as a Vietnam War era movie that really showed what it looked like when madness kind of came upon the world, came upon people, and destruction was seen everywhere. We have movies about the zombie apocalypse. Uh, I think The Walking Dead is um, like in its ninth season. It's still going. Um, We are obsessed with the end of the world. It wasn't too long ago that our nation was afraid of getting nuked by the Cubans and the Russians. People have bomb shelters and bug out bags. um, And there are all kind of conspiracy theories that are pretty mainstream. We think that some kind of virus will go out and all of a sudden the zombie apocalypse will happen. I think I spent way too many days and nights in my college dorm watching all those YouTube videos. Something is coming. And the rats are like pouring over the fields. And I probably watched too many of those. Um... One of my favorite movies is uh, the movie The Children of Men. I don't know if any of you have seen that with Clive Owen. Uh, Somehow in this world, the world becomes infertile. And it's 18 years since the last child is born. And the world goes crazy. It goes into the ash heap. Um, Without the gift of children in the world, everyone literally goes crazy. And everyone starts losing hope. People are despairing. Because this precious gift of children is no longer present. The world kind of descends into madness. And in this movie, there's terrorism all around them. Warfare and pestilence and disease. Mass migration is happening. And the country survives through having this kind of dictatorship going on. Um, And so the movie begins with this terrorist attack. And uh, where Clive Owen's character barely survives. And somehow he gets mixed up in this movie with this freedom organization, this terrorist organization that hands him this refugee woman from Africa. He doesn't know what's going on, but then he realizes that she's pregnant. She's the first woman to have a child in 18 years. And he has to guide her to safety through the midst of this chaotic revolution that's happening and to keep her out of the hands of the government, to keep her out of the hands of these guerrilla warfare, because everyone wants to use this miracle child. It's one of my favorite movies. And these kind of apocalyptic zombie-like movies and realities are kind of out there on our consciousness. Um, even the secular hardened atheist 
is thinking about climate change and global warming and floods going all over the world, ending everything in a moment. And I, and I bring this up because it's not too different from what is going on in the book of Lamentations. Um, this is not too different to what has happened to God's people. An apocalypse has really come upon them. And we see in this passage the author kind of having these flashbacks. He's seeing Judah when they were wealthy. They were affluent, living the high life. No one expects disaster to happen. And then Armageddon is unleashed on them. And this sad reality is something that really could have been avoided. And that's something that we see from the prophet Jeremiah and from other passages in the Bible, that they could have heeded the word of the prophets and God's word, but instead their sin and their pride blinded them and they went headlong into this apocalypse, as we'll talk about, which was God really just giving them to the desires that they wanted. God gave them over to those things. Their pride and self-reliance blinded them to the reality that everything they had was a good gift from God. And so the Lord often unravels life around us to awaken us to that. To the really self-destructive nature of sin. And the way that he does that is by having Jesus come in as this pure gift from heaven. So we had to think about three different points this morning, if, if you would follow with me. That first point is, sin makes us stupid. Um, I think everyone can relate to that. Sin makes us stupid. And then sin, sin brings about self-destruction. And then thirdly, sin's consequences awaken us to our need for Jesus. So first, sin makes us stupid. Um, Jerusalem was strong. It was this beautiful city. It was really difficult to attack and conquer. And Judah thought that it was unconquerable. From their perspective, they had God on their side because his holy temple was there. Um, they had the biggest nuclear arsenal. And they sang, God bless Jerusalem, every single Sunday. God, they thought, guaranteed their success. They had the temple, this marvel of the ancient world. God was the least of their worries, or so they thought. But what they didn't count on was that God's spirit had left them. They had no idea. They were living in comfort, and they didn't realize that the doom was near at hand. This, this, this picture that we see in Lamentations 4 is the aftermath of that. God's destruction coming down. The buildings are burnt to a crisp. That's what the ash heap kind of is a picture of. All that's left is ashes. And the people are just sitting in it. And these people who were once the, the talk of the ancient world, who were living in luxury, are now dressed in ashes for their clothes. They were like lepers, as the passage says. They were diseased, dead, and it looked like they were disowned by God. So the people of God are sitting in these ash heaps, 
finding it really hard to believe that this just happened. They're having like this, these PTSD flashbacks of the catastrophe that just occurred to them. And the author is thinking like, how did this happen? Why did this happen? Uh, we were living the high life. We were, our bodies, he said, are like gold. We had jewels all over us. We were rich. We were fat. We had the best fashions of the day, eating at the five-star Michelin hotels and restaurants every weekend. Uh, the world followed them on Instagram and Twitter. They were living the high life, the charm life. But in a moment, it all ended. The world descended on them faster than a Twitter mob on a racist. Like, it was insane. And so God was so long-suffering and patient with his people, calling them again and again to faith and repentance. For generations, God promised that this would happen. Um, this would happen. And they had something of like heaven on earth. They really did. But Judah really failed to realize what it was like to have a righteous, holy God in their presence, in their temple. They were lulled into a sense of security and peace by their sin and their riches and their wealth. And the sad reality is that for generations they had been warned. It wasn't like God came along and was like, oh, well, you forgot to tithe this weekend, so I'm bringing the judgment no, it was generations and generations of immorality and abuse and destruction. Um, and God was so long-suffering with them. But their sin blinded them to their doom. That's the point of this section, is that sin makes us stupid. Um, and I think that's something that we all, in our more sober moments, can relate to. Sin is like that. It blinds us in all kinds of ways that we can't even see how we're acting. Um, it takes us a moment after like having an argument with our spouse or loved one or brother or sister that we're just like, wow, I was a total jerk. Um, I just blew up for no reason. We're the last ones to see how bad we are. And so Judah and Jerusalem is really a picture of that for us. That they were really blinded by their false piety and they forgot that all these blessings were just a gift of God's grace. Um, and that's so true of us, isn't it? We're very easily into our sense of security and contentment thinking that God owes us a good life. Um, that we deserve happiness and that high life, have comfort and ease and entertainment. But the fall of Jerusalem really shows us how dangerous it is to be in God's presence, to be in the presence of the Lord, having his word in our hands, without seeking him in repentance and faith. Um, God's word is never neutral. We see that it's described as a 
a, a word that's a sword, that's sharper than any two-edged sword. That God is a holy fire of love. That two things are happening. Either he's melting our hearts in humility and love, transforming us into his image, refining us like gold, or we're being hardened by that same fire in our sin. So there's no safe encounter with God in that sense. He's not a safe lion, you know, as C.S. Lewis said. And so when we simply come into his presence, assuming that we deserve to be here, um, almost thinking that God is just going to accept us, you know, as we are in some sense, that's, that's kind of when we're in peril. I think we, I know what people usually mean when we think that God accepts us as we are, but we have to be careful that we don't even let, let that phrase, in some sense, allow us to not come to God in humility. Um, God accepts us because of Christ, in spite of ourselves. And that was really the perilous thought of the Jews of Jerusalem, They thought that simply by being the children of Abraham, having the temple mount over there, God's word nailed to the wall on every single courtroom in the country, that they were safe. Um, But nothing could be further from the truth. Yes, we come to Christ broken and needy, that is really true. But the Lord doesn't accept us because we are broken and raw. We don't just say, oh, well, grace abounds. Um, We can really use that phrase to our detriment, can't we? I think we can just be like, oh, grace abounds. I'm just going to keep on living the life I want to live. But that is, the Bible says, what we call cheap grace. Um, God accepts us despite ourselves because Christ is standing in our place. Uh, when we turn to Christ in faith and repentance, in humility, that's where Christ is. And, and, and the, the bigger thing is that, that grace isn't sufficient to just leave us where we are. Um, grace is not happy until it covers us, until it fills us, until it shines through us, through every crack and weakness and fissure in our body. Christ doesn't want us to like cover up those cracks and fissures with mud and just be like, oh, this is just who I am, Lord. You just got to accept me like that. Uh, No, he wants those cracks precisely because that is how his light gets in and his light gets out. That is how grace frees us to be more than we are. Jesus and His Spirit frees us from our sinfulness and pride by humbling us so that His Spirit can shine through us despite our weaknesses, despite our frailty. God doesn't want us to think that we're being humble when we're in some sense quenching His Spirit, that God must accept us as we are. That's really the danger that led Jerusalem again and again and again to judgment. The stupidity of sin, 
makes us seem safe because we don't recognize how deadly unrepentant sin is in our lives. It gives us that false sense of being at peace. It gives us a false sense of security. But there is no peace treaty that you or I can make with sin. I think that's what this passage is telling us. We can't make any peace treaties with sin. Um, We can't have a non-aggression act where we're like, oh, well, it's on that side and I'm on this side and as long as we don't bother each other. No, the Bible says it's it's an all-out war against our pride and against our sin. Our pride makes us think that we are far stronger than we really are. And so when temptation strikes, when evil strikes, we can lash out and do the unthinkable, can't we? Um, We might be at peace with our pride. But when things come, we really see what's in our hearts. And that's what happened to, to Jerusalem. In their pride, Jerusalem didn't surrender. Like, the prophet Jeremiah comes to them and says, you know, Babylon, your enemies are at your door knocking. All you have to do is surrender. Just surrender. And things will be better for you. Even after judgment was coming, God was like, okay, the promised judgment's here. I, this ha- I promised this would happen. If you would just surrender now, things will go better for you. But they're like, no, we're not going to do it. We're strong. This is, we're impregnable. We can't do this. I'm okay. And what do we see in our passage? The enemies of God brought starvation. They were forced to starvation. In their pride, Jerusalem They did the most horrific thing that we actually see in the whole Bible. That they were boiling their children and eating them. And that's just like, that is what God's people are capable of when they don't come to God in humility and repentance. That's the kind of evil in my heart. In everyone's heart. And so being given over to God's judgment like this, um, It shows that God can't take our sin flippantly. He doesn't have a cheap view of grace. He can't allow his holiness to partner with evil and sin. And so he has to humble us. He has to take away our strength, our power, our sense of peace and control. Whether it's in our relationships, whether it's in our jobs, whatever it is. He has to do that when we are unrepentant and not humble. He takes away those things because he's telling us it leads to self-destruction. That sin leads to destruction. It's like a giant stop sign before it's too late. Stop. Which brings us to our second point for today, that sin brings about self-destruction. When we see this kind of destruction in God's word, we can really wonder why this happens. When we see our lives fall apart because of our personal sin, we can really wonder why God would allow this to happen. How can he do this to his people? What's the point of it all? Isn't God loving? In verse 6, 
we read that the punishment, it says the punishment of Sodom was nothing like the punishment of Jerusalem. If you remember back from the Old Testament, if you remember back to the Genesis story of Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom becomes this proverb. We even hear it today, if you, if you hear people talk about it in the news, they say like Sodom is this proverb for wickedness. And it was a sinful city that was destroyed in an instant by fire and brimstone. And the author is saying, their judgment was nothing like ours. Theirs was over in a moment, but ours was prolonged. That Judas kept going on and on and on. And I think that that's something that's really important that it's telling us, that, that Jer- Jerusalem and Judah had to endure this greater judgment because they had no excuse. They had every single thing going for them. God's word was with them. His temple was there. All these miracles happened. They saw all these things. And so they had greater judgment because they were rejecting God's covenant mercies. The Bible says that those who know more are are culpable of more. Um, and that's what these, this author is really pointing out, is that they had this greater judgment because they had so much more reason to come to God in humility and repentance and in faith. And the point is that, that this picture is showing us is that our self-righteousness can, can so blind us that we can't be reasoned with in these moments. Um, Jerusalem could have surrendered and they could have eased the suffering of their people, but it didn't happen. You know, I can't be talked out of my sin. Um, once I want something, you know, like, I want it. You know, the heart wants what it wants. And it, our minds can't be reasoned out of it. Um, it doesn't happen. It's just like a toddler who's having a meltdown. You can't just be like, well, if you act like that, you know, you're going to have high blood pressure and you're going to pass out because you can't breathe. And um, no, we can't be reasoned when we're like that, can we? And it's just like, and that's what God's people were doing here is that they couldn't even be reasoned with. And it led them to the self-destruction, these destructive habits and lifestyles. It led them to all kinds of suffering because of their own evil. And I think the whole of human history is kind of like a big picture of that. Um, It's been a one sad tale of mankind trying to have happiness without God. Um, Which ironically and sadly brings hell onto earth. It really does. Even today it's clear when we live for ourselves that self-centeredness rather than God-centeredness, makes us miserable. It makes us blind. It makes us more self-centered, more self-absorbed, more self-justifying. More breakdowns occur relationally, psychologically, and even physically. We go deeper into a denial of ourselves that that we are our own biggest problem. I'm my biggest problem. And so we need something to jolt us, to wake us up from this 
peril that we're going into, we're marching to, just so blindly. Our passage today, we even see that the, that the religious leaders, the prophets, the people who are paid to know better, were the biggest instigators. And I think that that's a real wake-up call to me and to everyone. Um, the chief priests and the prophets were the chief instigators in leading God's people astray. That's just remarkable. Even up to Jesus' day, they were using God to make money, as we heard in the law passage, turning God's house into a den of thieves, turning God's house into a marketplace where they could just get rich and have peace and security and living a good life. We put on a good show, but inside our hearts are doing it for power and control and that false peace. And you know, for me personally, I have to say that it's very easy to fall into this. Um, being around God's word all the time is dangerous. Um, it's so easy to fake it in ministry. It's so easy to fake it in just the Christian life. I mean, come on. Um, the danger of constantly being around God's word, becoming immune to it, not being sh- shaken by it. I have it all under control, I think. Um, I got my doctrine down. I got my master's degree I got the Christian look down. I grew up in the Midwest. Have you heard of Midwest niceness? Like it's a, it's a real thing. Um, kindness comes easy to people from the Midwest. But that's what I hear. I don't know. Um, it's so easy to fake it in the Christian life for all of us. Not to take worship seriously. To be kind of just bored by it all. This is like, why does church have to be so boring? Um, and it's so easy to think that. Um, so hard to be transparent. My sin is really to think that I can domesticate God like a pet um, or a cosmic bellboy who's just going to come at the ring of a bell so that I can just use him whenever I want. Oh, life's getting hard. I lost my job. I need to pray. I need to pray more. Um, I can just take him or leave him when it's convenient. Man, that's a struggle. Can anyone relate to that? I think that's something that we all can really relate to. And these passages are a warning for us that, you know, God can't be mocked. He won't be used like that. He opposes me when I'm like that. He opposes the proud. And so he often lets sin run its course to to awaken us. Um, He gives us these living parables in the book of Lamentations to see this is where sin leads to. When we get our way, that it literally leads to hell. Um, The story of of Jerusalem is a coming attraction of what hell is like. And it's important because it unveils the seriousness and the danger of living for ourselves. Without, you know, ever, when coming into God's presence without ever really being humbled. We can just come again and again and again and never really come to him in humility, in faith. And that's really what, 
at the end of the day, hell is. Um, it's God actively giving me and us up to our sin. Things that we've actually freely chosen. Everyone that is going to go to hell is going to be there because they chose it. Um, being the master of our own fate and the captain of our soul. It's really God banishing us to the regions where we have desperately tried to get to our whole lives. Um, and it's so important to talk about because, you know, as C.S. Lewis says, unless that pride and self-centered way is nipped in the bud, then we find that that small piece of hell is growing up inside of us. But God is so merciful. He's so faithful that in his mercy he sends the consequences of our sin, the judgment of sin in this life to be like a smelling salt, a smack in the face. That we, that's what we really, that's what I need sometimes. <laughs> um, the judgment is like a megaphone saying, turn from this path, don't enter here. Abandon hope, all ye who enter. And so sometimes God has to take away everything and leave us on the ash heap like Judah, because we have failed to appreciate what we have until it's taken away. God has to take away our false peace, our false security, like Jerusalem, like we heard in the, in the reading of the law. They thought they had peace and security. And Jesus is like, you don't have peace. I don't have peace when I'm like that. And God removes those things as a good father, not because he hates us, but because he's merciful. He wants to give you and I lasting peace. Which brings us to our third point for the day. Sin's consequences awaken us to our need of Jesus. They awaken us to our need of Jesus. Um, I'm reminded of how... God often interacts with this world. I think that there's two ways that we can see God interacting. And that God's proper or his primary work of love and grace has to be distinguished from his secondary, or what we'd say alien work of judgment and wrath. Um, the writer Martin Luther, when commenting upon God's judgment on Israel, he said that when our flesh is so evil, that it cannot be saved by God's proper and primary work of love and grace that we see, it's often necessary for him to save us by his alien work of judgment and wrath so that he can destroy our ungodliness so that we can be brought back and see his love. I love that because I think that's just so helpful. He uses that for the good purpose of bringing us back to his love. God, because of sin and rebellion, has to show us where those things lead. He wouldn't be a good father if he didn't. Could you imagine your dad watching you go and run off into headlong into traffic? It's like, oh, well, he's just a free spirit. You know, you just got to let him do that. Um, he's got to learn the hard way. No, he's going he's gonna to rush in and he's going to grab you, even if it hurts, because he doesn't want you to get hit by that car. Um, God, if God gave us exactly what we wanted, the things that we love, 
He's saying we would die. So he allows us to enter into judgment sometimes. Those end of the world kind of moments where you think everything's falling apart. To awaken us to his grace. To save us from the ash heap of sin and death. And he uses the consequences of sin to awaken us to that. We see that in, in verse 22 that he says that the, that the punishment is, is, the end of punishment is in sight. God is faithful to his promises. Even after all that has happened, he still calls us the daughter of Zion. The exile is coming to an end. He still calls us by our true name. Yes, God resists the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. I'm reminded of a, of a beautiful scene in that, in that movie, The Children of Men. Um, Clive Owen's character is, they're in this refugee camp where this battle starts happening between this guerrilla group and the, and the government. And, and bombs are going off, machine guns are happening, tanks are coming in, planes are flying in and bombs are going off. Bullets are zipping everywhere. And then all of a sudden, this woman that he's guiding gives birth. And the baby starts crying as they're trying to escape. And then something happens. Everyone just stops fighting. It's just this beautiful scene. Everyone is in awe. And everyone, both sides, just are reaching out to touch the infant child. Because they realized what a gift it was after they had lost it. Angelic music is going on in the background. And I think that's very much like a picture of what we see in our passage and in the gospel passage that we even read. These people had the high life. They had all these wonderful blessings. And then the apocalypse happens. And it's bullets and warfare and bombs going off. The ashes are everywhere. While we're constantly seeking that high life, that life that God is saying, don't go towards. God comes down again and again and again in humility. While we're clothing ourselves in pride, God is casting off his cloak of a king and coming down to us in humiliation. He humbles us to the dust because that's exactly where he is found. And so you know the solution, you know the solution to faking it, the solution to faking it in the Christian life isn't just fake it till you make it. Um, no, it's not having to be perfect or just coming to God all cleaned up. That's not what we're saying. When I struggle each day to pray and read my Bible or to be honest or come to church or even to give a care, um, the solution is to push through that and to speak to God honestly. Confess with your hearts. Lean into Him. Let Him humble you and amaze you. Let Him interrupt your lives each day. And let Him change you so that He can change our false peace to lasting peace. And He'll come as He promises. Not because we demand it, because we deserve it, because he promises.
And that's what we see in the passage that Joel read today. The angels burst open into this world and they meet these lowly shepherds who are just like terrified. They're like, oh no, I didn't get my act up together today. I didn't pray the Torah. Uh, What do I do? Judgment's coming. No, and they're, they're just in fear. The lowly shepherds hear this announcement of a, of a call and a baby comes and God takes a vulnerable form of the most, neak, of the most needy, weak infant God, just as he promised. And the spell of sin is broken. He comes into our world in a food receptacle. Our God comes to migrant parents as peasants living this road, this life, this lifelong road of poverty, of humility, the eternal word of God who ceaselessly spoke God's praise becomes an infant, which literally means unable to speak. The infinite word of God became one who was unable to speak for you and for me. Jesus descends into our hell. He gave full vent to his wrath on Christ. On Christ. So that our pride and violence can finally have an answer in Christ's humble, humble love. And it's on the ash heap that that's happening. That's why he has to bring us there sometimes. Because that's the only place that Jesus has found He's found with the shepherds. He's found with the lowly. He's found with the humble. So the answer isn't to clean up through your act. No, God is going to do that. He'll do that when it's timing. It's not to fake it, but it's to come in humility and say, Lord, nothing in my hands I bring. Only to your cross I cling. And so we come today, in conclusion, we come today like those shepherds, like the author of the Lamentations on the ash heap. Our efforts to gain peace and control over life's chaos, my efforts to, do, to even use Christianity to do that, are just cast aside by this crying, defenseless baby. Like those shepherds, we may not be expecting too much coming to church, We're just like, oh, we're just going to come and feed the sheep and, you know, clean up their stuff and guide them to food and do shepherdy stuff. Um, And what did they, what were they left with? They had fear and then all of a sudden it turns to amazement at God's presence. And that is what we hear today, that Jesus is passing among us today. He's here right now. Will you reach out and touch him in humility and faith today? That's what he's calling. He's just saying he's right here. He's passing in the midst of our table, in the midst of our congregation. And he says, my peace I give to you, not like the world gives. My peace I give to you. So God humbles us to to save us. And he humbles us because that's the place where he's found. Amen. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your 
word and we thank you for everything that you've given to us. How you come to us in humility and love. Even when we're so sinful and prideful. um, Where we want to go headlong into our sin. Where I want to just be so apathetic. You still push through that and you come to us. Awakening us to our sin and our consequences. That you oppose the proud, but you give more grace to the humble. So we ask, Lord, today that you humble us. Allow us to feel your presence. To feel your love. That you waded through hell itself rather than lose us. And what could make us feel more loved and valued than that? And it's in your Son's name we ask. Amen.